The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. When I go out to DJ and I'm in front of a crowd, it's the ultimate drug. Nothing is better because it's like being the, the, the point of connection between people's love of music, people's love of being together collectively, um, people being a bit intoxicated, you're on the stage, it's, it's phenomenal. But actually, day in, day out, I think like a lawyer and I think about my clients and I think about my practice. It's a business and I charge money, but I think about it in a sort of semi-altruistic way as well. Hello, pod pickers, and welcome to this episode of The Hearing Podcast with me, Kevin Poulter, and today's special guest, Jules O'Riordan, also known as Judge Jules. We hear how a North London schoolboy and law graduate pressed pause on his legal career to spin a 30-year reign as a top international DJ. Jules talks to us about the challenges of managing life in Ibiza alongside life back at law school. And how his music career has assisted his legal work as a senior associate at media and entertainment specialist Sound Advice. The Hearing. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. A very good morning to you as well. Now, you're not the first judge that we've had. Um, but I'm quite concerned uh, about the, pr- the correct manner of address. Uh, wh- how should I refer to you? Well, in the legal context, please don't refer to me <laughs> as a judge because you could get me in an awful lot of trouble. It's a nickname that at the moment is kind of living in a suspended period of uh, ambiguity. But I definitely think we have to, where, wherever me as a practicing solicitor is concerned, the, ex- the, the use of the word judge is strictly off limits. Uh, so are you, do you go by Jules? Jules, indeed. Okay, yeah. that's, not your, yeah. that's not your official name. That's not your, your on-the-roll name. Julius. Julius. My, yeah, Julius. But it's Julius. I mean, I'm, I do have more syllables than uh, than that town in Wales that nobody can ever pronounce. <laughs> so we, we like to abbreviate a little bit. Well, I, I'm happy I'm happy with Jules. Uh, let's go from there. Uh, so I'm going to start off with how, uh, first of all, did you go from being a sort of a, a let's say, a privately educated or well-educated schoolboy in North London to the world's biggest DJ. Uh, how does that even happen? And, and what did your parents have to say about this? Well, oh God, you, 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 you've thrown two things into the equation. <laughs> One, I actually only went to private school in my sixth form. I went to Comprehensive. Oh, really? I went to Highgate Wood Comprehensive in Crouch End until I was 16. Um, so I'm state educated for all but two years in my life. All right. Um, what did your parents have to say? Well, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. My mother sadly died when I was 18. Oh, uh, and there's a bit, well, there's no need for sympathy now because it's a long way down the line. And I guess to an extent, that degree of adversity was a, was a significant kind of shunt in the direction of, of ambition. And, um, and my father was a in his younger years, a jobbing actor and then a TV director. So understood what it was like to be in the entertainment industry, Mm. but as a freelancer where you're only as good as your last gig or indeed probably only as good psychologically as your next gig. Yeah. And and how did that lead to a, well, first of all, a law degree or or setting out to do a law degree? You were at LSE. I was, yeah. And I come from a family of teachers and academics. My mother was a teacher, my aunt was a teacher, my uncle is a is a professor at Oxford. So uh, if I if there was one thing in my life to avoid, it was being the kind of pariah of the family and not going to university. But at the same time, I didn't necessarily have a, a particular sort of interest subject-wise. And therefore, as I think is the case with a lot of people who, uh, you know, dare I say it, are okay academically, one does law because it kind of leaves a lot of doors wide open. Um, Little did I know that the, that the door that was left widest was, of course, being a rave promoter. But that's that's a different story. <laughs> well, well, no. Let's let's look at that story. Uh, so, so off you go to uh, the LSE uh, to do law. Uh, how does that then 
develop into leaving LSE, uh, I think after after your degree is completed. Yes, I've got my degree, yeah. But straight into being, I think, a professional DJ. I was already doing it, actually, before I went to university. Oh, right. So when I was so oh. in my sixth form... Uh, I, one of, the, one of the golden rules that you don't realise when you're 15 or 16 is that your social circle is the biggest it's ever going to be in your life. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, some kind of probably subconscious uh, entrepreneurial um, but light bulb went <laughs> off in my head and we started putting on events for our for not just our friends, but everybody in the kind of North London vicinity. We found a venue that I will not mention, but actually the venue still exists right now in North London that was that turned not just a blind eye, because it was you'd have to be more than blind to realise the age group of people that were coming to our events, to basically underage people coming in. And it was a fairly large venue, held about 800 or 1,000 people, but it was also wow. a modular venue that you could do smaller events that were capable of growth within the same venue. So we put a multitude of things on, me and my then sort of cohort, who went on actually to do very, very well in his own right in the music industry, mm. um, almost, dare I no, I don't want to say better than me because that sounds conceited, <laughs> but actually financially considerably better. He's, he's uh, but I, I won't necessarily mention his name, but he was very involved with two enormous acts. Um, so, so that's what we did. We put on events, I mean, and... We were the DJs, really, and it does, we weren't good, but it was it was a, a case of not survival of the fittest, but survival of the least unfit, i.e. there weren't any other DJs. We were pretty crap, but mm. we were the only ones on offer, and therefore away it went. So by the time I went to university, actually that little uh, cottage industry had developed further. By that point, I'd, ch- I'd started working with a different cohort, mm. uh, and we started putting on illegal raves, which was a bit of a kind of um, a bit of a paradox to put it mildly when you when you're going to university to study law um, I, I think I should point out you know the solicitor in me obliges me to point out that at the time the law the sort of anti-rave laws were, were, were pretty non-existent actually yeah. it was only in the early 90s that it became something that was actually quite a serious criminal offense so it was it was all quite done done in quite good humor and quite good spirits mm. and so by the time I went to university I was actually putting these events on uh, with a fair degree of consistency and, dare I say, experience. Um, so I came out of university age 21. I didn't do a gap year because I didn't really see a need to do a gap year because I was mm. doing fun stuff anyway. Mm. Uh, I came out already with a bit of a DJ sort of um, career under my belt. Wow. And did, did did the fact you'd already got that up and running affect why you went to university in London as well? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm a bit of a London star. Ironically, I sort of, um, I sort of do... Some, Part of my life has lived in Spain, but I and has been lived in Spain even more in the past. But I've always been a little bit of a London snob. I've been fortunate mm. enough to travel just about everywhere in DJ land and to be shown around those places by locals, which is almost more of a privilege than actually going to the places in the first place. So you're never going as a tourist. But London, you know, without quoting Samuel Johnson and getting uh, uh, London really is where the heart is. Uh, incredible. And uh and and so off you come uh, spinning out of university, and you've got the law degree now. Um, you, you've had some investment in, in your in your education. Uh, your parent, uh, well, your dad certainly, and your, your mum as well, uh, had invested in you uh, in your creativity. Um, but also, a law degree, pretty stable, like you say, you can do anything with it. But rave DJ isn't your typical outcome. Uh, I would say. Where did the rave music element come from? Where that was that prevalent at the time? Was that part of your you know, youth growing up, sort of during school? Where was that musical influence? 
I mean, I guess um, I just love dance music. I just love the atmosphere of clubs. I think I think when you're a when you're a kid, and most of the DJs I've chatted about this with will say similar stuff that you are you're always the the epicenter of your social circle musically. Most mm. social groups have got some interest in music will have one person who's the most passionate, who's the first in the current era, the first person on their own Spotify play, playlist, but obviously back in the day, mm. it was me with record collection and going out to secondhand record stores and um and so we just hang out and through the eight, probably from about 12 onwards to about 16, all we wanted to do was hang out in one another's bedrooms playing music, which mm. is which is brilliant, of course. Uh, and you and, it, and it's the what it's why music's so important, why I believe music's the most important art form because mm. you can almost you can set your life, the timetable, the historical of event, events, the key historical events of your life to certain tracks. And that and that period of my life was when that kind of mindset got, um got formulated so um but of course when you get a little bit older and girls start coming into the equation and you like you are um 16 17 18 it starts to get a bit geeky and maybe not quite as cool so i think a lot of people who who remain a bit of a music geek which i still am and i and i certainly was then Mm. um almost feel like they have to go out and dj and justify why it is that I'm a bit of an anorak, and that's probably one of the key reasons. You know, a the the desire to proliferate, to share this th- this thing you love, but probably more importantly, to try and say, no, I'm not really a geek. I'm actually making money out of this um, yeah. this fad. Yeah, and and uh, that career, like looking back, it feels like it just exploded for you. But looking at the dates as as I've done, um, it took you ten years to get from uh, I think that leaving university. To then having your show on Radio One, which obviously became the soundtrack to many people's lives and weekends, particularly for so many years. I, I remember at university, uh, that was what everyone listened to on a, on a Saturday night uh, and, and, and Friday nights as well. How did that develop from illegal raves in North London through to national and in an international radio? Well, I mean, it's a it's a sort of multi multifaceted story that I'll try and avoid boring you with too much. I mean, the the, the key kind of career strands are one radio because I started on pirate radio. I then the pirate the second pirate station I was on Kiss FM became legal in 1990, and I was on that for seven years until I joined Radio One. Two is the is burgeoning music making career, which was at the time more difficult than it might seem because it was very expensive to access the equipment. Um, I as soon as I could afford to do it, I sort of saved. Well, I say saved my pennies. I saved a lot of pounds and eventually I spent about 100 grand on a studio in my early 20s um, and which enabled me to basically put records out as the calling card of a DJ which is the way that DJ's careers are forged even mm. now um, irritatingly the same stuff that I spent that very hard earned 100 grand on meanwhile probably still living with my parents later than I should in order to channel all my money in that direction uh that could be done within a laptop for nothing now, um, yep. for, for zero. So it's sort of a slight frustration um, that it's so easy now to access music making. Um, and I guess with radio, with club dates, with making music, with doing a bit of journalism at the time as well, yep. comes just that, 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 that sort of permeating um, brand awareness, if you like. And, and, and actually, I think those brands that have the slowest build and the slowest burn tend to be brands that uh maybe i'm talking a little bit generally when i use the expression brands but certainly from an artistic from in the artistic sphere Mm. if you have a slow build Mm. then then and you you're careful and you're wise and you make 
a majority right decisions, because of course you make many wrong ones, then your chances of having a sustained career, provided, dare I say it, that you're semi-decent at what you do, are all the greater. And at what stage did your uh, uh, career bring into play the legal side of things? So uh, were you being managed? Do you have an agent? Uh, were you uh, under contract with various clubs or with radio or presumably not uh, um, the, the pirate radio? But uh, how, how did that operate and what sort of awareness did you have around that? Uh, actually, I was probably one of the most dangerous breed, which is somebody with a law degree who thinks they're a lawyer. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a, a foolish mistake. Fortunately, I was legally advised in certain key contracts. Uh, I mean, the interplay with law started almost immediately when I started making records in particular. I mean, the, the, the show bookings tend not to be something one personally interplays with because you've got an agent, as, as one sub subsequently learns as a lawyer, you are actually contractually tied into an agency arrangement, but you don't mm. realise that at the time. Mm. Um, so there were many uh, contracted by the BBC, contracted by record companies. I became an A&R for Universal in the mid-90s, so kind of contracted in a sort of employee sense. I, I was an employee, not a contractor. Mm. So lots of interplay with the law and probably using lawyers much... I did have a lawyer, but I... But I as, as appears to be the way, unfortunately, in the music industry more than any other sphere of the arts, I treated it in quite a price-sensitive fashion. Mm. And actually, there were certain contracts that I signed that I now bitterly regret and, and became the kind of influence for wanting to go and avoid uh, others suffering the same fate that I did. But mine, mine was a, you know, a peculiar combination of circumstances, which is that, to repeat, the dangers of being a law... Mm a law graduate who thinks they're a lawyer. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be a few sympathetic listeners right now. Uh, so at what stage or what, what, what events came about that made you think, oh, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm here, I'm DJing in Ibiza. Actually, do you know what? I want to go back and be a lawyer. What, when did that happen? Was that again a well, gradual process? I mean, there, there, there are a lot of strands to that answer, really. First and foremost, um, I can only name three DJs older than me who have still got very buoyant careers now yeah. uh, and that would be Pete Tong, mm. Paul Oakenfold and Carl Cox um, and so I just didn't know there, were, there was no career structure there was no role models and um, they're, they're all a few years older than me I mean maybe Norman Cook as well Fatboy Slim yeah. um, but there was nobody older than me to, to, to chart the path and tell me whether I could still be doing this when I'm you know I'm in my 50s now whether I was, would still be doing it in my 60s assuming I wanted to do it mm. Um, secondly, I've got two kids, My old, the oldest of whom is 20. I didn't see him grow up at all. I'm, we're together as a family, yeah. but I didn't see him grow up mm. until he was 10 or 12. And as he became a sort of teenager and sort of hormones started bubbling to the surface, um, I realised it wasn't, it's not an ideal scenario being away absolutely all the time. Bearing in mind that I was for 15 years probably doing a long haul trip every fortnight and on the other weekend doing like, an exhaustive kind of European itinerary. Mm. Um, mm. Also, just the... It's not very healthy doing that. And it, it's not to say I've ever had any... Men, uh, you know, God's willing, I've not had any addiction or mental health issues at all, but a lot of people around me have. Mm. But the reality is it's simply not healthy to continue that crazed touring that makes even the the kind of body clock um, struggles of, a, like, let's say, a long-haul cabin crew or a pilot seem quite mm. mild by comparison so I spent a few years kind of 
running the mental Rubik cube of what to do next and before the obvious solution um, became apparent and in my mid-30s I went back to law school because by that point my degree was extremely out of date a Mm. bit like trying to practice medicine in the 21st century when you've learned it in the 19th century (laughs) Um, and actually it was a valuable exercise bearing in mind it, it had been the best part of 15 years since I'd left university and it ironically it was only at about a couple years prior to going back to part-time law school that I'd stopped having the nightmares about failing my finals. <laughs> uh, so sort of taking yourself back into the emotional and psychological cauldron, um, I, I did it as slowly as I could. My objective was to be kind of qualified and practising by the time I was 45, um, but actually to do the, mm. the redo the law degree, do the LPC, um, as slowly as I could, and that's what I did. So I did it kind of part-time, you know, dare I say it, I did it traveling in, not in economy class, uh, from A to B and in hotel rooms and stuff. And it was great. It was a, I I actually spent the first year, I just picked up all the text, you know, the modern versions of all the core textbooks, the academic textbooks Mm. that now we as practicing lawyers are slightly deride because they don't really deal with the kind of, the, the, uh, the coal face element of being a lawyer. But it was really important for me after all that time to go back and just refresh myself. And I, I think I could remember like one case from 15 years earlier. So it really was, that was the first thing to do. Read all, read all the cortex, your criminal, your contract, your tort, blah de blah uh, And then a year later, after I'd sort, sort of refreshed myself what the, what the hell the law was, mm. let alone everything else, uh, went to went went back and did sort of the slowest possible part-time repeat of degree and, yeah. and, and professional qualifications. Did you come back, it, sa- it sounds, just looking at you now, it sounds like you came back a little bit like a teacher's pet, uh, probably more enthusiastic for the law than you were the first time round. I think I'm, I, I most certainly was. I, was a, I went to university when I was 18 mm. um, from a family of teachers who, my grandmother was one of the first women at Cambridge, my uncle, Professor Oxford, um, so it was. I just I, I was taking the path of least resistance in going to university and doing something vaguely sensible, mm. um, and I, I wouldn't say that I disliked my law degree first time round, but I certainly there's nothing like actually go, do getting involved in academia because you want to rather than because you're expected to for uh, a, a dose of enthusiasm. Yeah. And I think I think that uh, I, I, again I I've got huge respect for people who as adults having had other careers with their own lives, with their own uh, families, to, to make that commitment to go to the, then to university to do all this again, often with or alongside people fresh out of school. And I think that can be a difficult commitment and I think that can be a difficult relationship to manage. Coming into that, being Judge Jules, surely added an extra element of, of uh, curiosity amongst your, your, your peers, but also a little bit of suspicion maybe, like why are you here, what are you doing? Well, I managed to keep my head down for the first few months of each course because obviously I, doing the degree, stroke doing the the professional qualifications, had a separate set of students, I did them in separate places. Uh, but after a while, it did get a little bit surreal. I, it, it's a strange time because I remember my law, uh, because I'm at my second firm now, I initially, I trained at Sheridan to a great firm uh, in Soho. Um, and I remember, I remember my time as a practicing lawyer really vividly, but the time as a student, even though it's not that long ago, as a student second time around, is a bit of a blur. It was like maybe sometimes psychologically we, we crush the most traumatic memories. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and I almost uh, think maybe that's what my mind has done. I don't yeah. remember it. So, I, I mean, it was quite traumatic because of the first uh, 
part-time qualification I did involved going to Guildford, going to the University of Law in Guildford mm. and driving around the M25 sort of um, once a week at rush hour from yeah. North London. And that, that that trauma has stuck with me, I've got to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. I think most people have blocked out the LPC. Um, so... so Having, it's one thing to, to do an academic law degree. It's one thing even to do the LPC. Were you worried that you wouldn't have an appetite for being a lawyer? Because they're two very different things, as you know. Um, what, what did you do to test out that element? You've worked with lawyers, obviously, through your career. Uh, but then it's another thing, another step to actually do well, that. No, I must say that was never really a concern. I think my, my interplay with lawyers had taught me that. Because in any uh, practice area commercial awareness is at least 51% and kind of legal skills is 49%. Maybe that maybe that equilibrium is slightly different according to what your practice area is. But um, the commercial skills and the commercial experience, dare I say it, were very strong because I've done, I've pretty much done everything in the music business to quite a high standard. I mean, be, notwithstanding all the, the stuff we've talked about, you know, I've worked, I've been a promoter at a very high level. I've been, I've worked, I've run my own label for a, for a major. I've been a manager of other artists and run a management company. The only thing I haven't done, and that, and it took a bit of brushing up, was music publishing. I've not mm. been a music publisher. I, I have been published by the same music publisher for many a year, but I didn't really pay much attention mm. to the detail of it. So, the good thing was there was only really one core bit of kind of commercial awareness that mm. required brushing up and it interested me and it interested me on the one hand and it annoyed me how exploited both I and even more so others that had been around me had been so it gives you a bit of a fight the good fight mentality so mm. I knew that, that that element of it would captivate me and it continues to do so until till now. So you went into a training contract with Sheridan, as you've already mentioned. Uh, did you have a, an easy in to that, or was it, did you have, was it still a quite competitive process? Was it an easy in? I, I didn't go through the normal, um, the normal recruitment process. I, a friend of mine is very senior in the music business. Um, it was the first... Sheridan's an unusual firm in that it has two managing partners and not one. And it was the first time both managing partners had interviewed a traineeship candidate. I don't think they'd interviewed a traineeship <laughs> candidate ever, but I got both of them. And and the, 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 the strange thing about the interview was I didn't didn't really need... There was no... Dare I say it, there was no need to prove myself from, an, from a kind of commercial experience point of view. Yeah. So we actually ended up talking about football and kind of living in North London, which one of them, one of them had a daughter at the same school my daughter goes to so right. so it was more a case of seeing whether my face a whether I was serious because I think they were they were sort of smirking when I first walked into the into the meeting as, as you might do because I was doing this at a very strong period in my career where it, it probably made no sense I'd kept it very quiet yeah. I'd kept my aspirations very quiet in relation to it I hadn't told Radio 1 mm. I just thought it's best let's just do this on the on the on, on the QT it's to the extent possible to keep it quiet do you think that would still be the case in the sort of the, the current social media world mm, who knows it was in the social me- media yeah. era probably um so then there was another interview. It was it wasn't as if yeah. it was just okay. Yeah, you've you've convinced us. You're now in. We yeah. The, the firm gave me a second interview, in a more in the, of a style that would probably be given to a, a slightly more normal candidate. And did you go uh, at this stage sort of cold turkey on the on the music or on your DJ? Not career? at all. I mean, I think the the thing the thing for me is I had this kind of I had this idea that come forty five. I would um, I would be in a position where DJing was significantly dwindling, and I then had sort of ten years to grow a practice to, and to grow a legal career. Um, there were there were other elements to the dynamic that I didn't anticipate, and 
the the most significant thing about becoming a lawyer, notwithstanding the fact that I realised I truly care and it's worked very well and I built a client practice very quickly, is it gives you this, is psychologically as an artist to be successful, you have to be very dare I say it, quite self-centred and have a very thick skin Mm. and be able to take a lot of knocks. Um, Suddenly, as a lawyer, you have to... Yes, that experience and the the, the brand that I developed might get you clients, but the minute I start talking too much about myself, they're very disinterested because it's not about me, it's about them. And that was a really valuable... For me, karma-wise, experience-wise, psychologically, was a huge... and it didn't shock me, but I, I suppose the most shocking thing was I didn't get it before I kind of experienced it. Yeah. And within um, three months of having client meetings, I realized just how unimportant talking about my own experience was. But the great thing about being a lawyer, um, if you've got a broad spectrum of clients and, you're, and, you, and you do sit and listen and don't talk about yourself, which is ultimately what you've got to do, because that's... You know, part of the job being a good listener is a key part of the job is you get this amazing view from the mountaintop mm. so rather than having this kind of tunnel visioned uh, vista on my own career suddenly I was looking at the experiences of other artists the experiences of other managers and do you know what within three months I sacked my own manager and got somebody else who had been looking after me for a really long time and it, dare I say it got quite stale yeah. really um, not no no disrespect to him actually artists don't normally have managers for that long and mm. it was a it should have it was something I should have done much earlier got a new manager and that was about five years ago and who has just transformed my DJ career so what I didn't anticipate was that I would have I would hit now at this point in time um, have these two parallel careers where I can kind of DJ as much as I want to, and I and I don't do more than weekends because, and I do go to bed at about eight PM on a Sunday night so yeah. that I wake up kind of fresh um, for my legal practice. Mm. Um, but that the most unanticipated thing of all was the fact that I would have a really strong DJ career at mm. the moment alongside the legal career. Yeah. So you moved on from Sheridan's to Sound Advice. Now, we like a, a pun on the hearing, as you might expect, but tell us about the work that you're doing there and a little bit more about the firm. Well, Sound Advice is based in Tile Yard, which is the biggest, how does one describe it, industrial estate. It makes it sound really <laughs> bland and kind of suburban, but or not even suburban, sort of out of town. But it's, um, Tile Yard is the biggest uh, industrial estate of music businesses, firms, probably in the world, certainly in Europe and absolutely in the UK mm. there's 200 different businesses 80 studios with some real household names who've got studios in the yeah. in the complex Mark Ronson Noel Gallagher the prodigy um, Chase and Status lots of commercial commercially run studios mm. and then another 120 businesses doing the entire spectrum of the music industry there are music managers there are music publishers there are uh, businesses doing music sync, media and music businesses, you name it. There's only one law firm and Sound Advice is that firm. Wow, an entire uh, music ecosystem. It, it, it is, you? and it's, it's an interesting one. So I've come from a firm that is almost a full-service firm, certainly full-service where media is concerned, yeah. covering film and TV, covering uh, the kind of digital side of things, mm. covering the kind of data world. Yeah, reputation co- cover, Yeah, reputation yeah. management. Um, uh, and of course music, to a firm which just does music, albeit with the same amount of music lawyers as where I came from. Um, For me, it's a a slightly better fit on the basis of clients. Um, 
on the books, although I, Sheridan is a fantastic firm and I would not have trained anywhere else. But for me, as somebody who has become a lawyer later than just about anybody on the block, I needed to go to a smaller firm to kind of to, to go to, to move through the kind of firm a little bit more quickly is mm. the, is the reality and it's a very it's a it's a great firm with with a couple of um, senior lawyers who are fantastic mentors because you mm. in reality although I've got good experience you in life you learn and learn and learn and then you die and and I, I, I will never believe that I'm the complete package as a lawyer but I have uh, I, I've certainly uh, ex- in terms of experience, fast-tracked myself by design, um, I believe, a lot a lot more rapidly mm. than, than many of my peers. Mm. And, and you mentioned the, the client base. Um, but having so many musician friends, and cl- as, as well as clients, how do you make that transition from, can you just give us a bit of free advice on this, to actually making money for the firm of yourself, obviously, through that? It was an interesting one because at first, many of my what well, some of my friends fell into two camps when I first started. Even when I was when I when I was a trainee, they would either, in a studied fashion, avoid allowing me to represent them, and subsequently, you know, a few years down the line, say it said I started representing them, but said you know we wanted to avoid this until mm. you got a bit more experience under your belt. But actually, certain other friends threw me into work that was way above my pay grade for want of a better description and yeah. that was just unless you can start on the coal face you never you, you know the lumps of coal never never come out of the surface do they yeah. and and um yeah i was very lucky in that respect and and it was a broad spectrum of work the good thing about being a bit older is that you that i've got friends who have got quite developed businesses were prepared to give me a chance many of whom had lawyers already um, I mean, I suppose in the first instance with newer clients who weren't pre-existing friends, I competed a bit more on price mm-hmm. r- rather than on experience because you you need to create the, mem- the momentum of mm-hmm. your client base. And now I've, I'm in a position where I don't have to compete on price and you can, I'm competing on reputation. But needs must, if you like, to, to, to create the, uh, the client base in the first instance. Yeah, you surprised me earlier when you were saying about, uh, to a certain extent, when you are saying that... Uh, it's not your experience which counts that it's other people clients it's it's about them it's about what's happening to them but inevitably the experience that you have through the various roles that you've had in your career um give give you that sort of extra information that extra insight that people like myself wouldn't necessarily have and you have to go out and speak more to the client and get that you're you're an you're an easy starter of course i'm not saying that i don't take my experience and apply it to a client but telling personal anecdotes all the time is not does isn't really that valuable unless it's an anecdote that is really closely parallel to the situation that your client is asking you about. And do you think you've been able to help people avoid so far the maybe mistakes, the um, uh, uh, or, or bad advice that you received in the past? Have you had that opportunity already? Have you have, has that sort of been been that light bulb moment? I think I've done that almost on a daily basis, <laughs> but. You know, I have to I have to temper my my situation in life. Being older, I've you know I've got property, got drive around a nice car, I've got material things. So uh, what I would do commercially is tempered by that. Whereas if I'm not a 21 year old being offered a hundred grand uh, advance in a contract that isn't necessarily good in other respects, mm. so um, it's always important to understand that that many clients will go will take the health warning will allow you to 
mark up the contract and improve the contractual uh, improve the commercial terms up to a point mm. but at the same time they want to go for the pot of gold <laughs> and but but my job is to make them understand the 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 no such thing as a free lunch adage and explain what the downside uh, the difficult i mean another difficulty is that i'm in the business of rights you know fundamentally if you're a, if you're an entertainment lawyer uh, there are other considerations but the two things the two primary considerations to, you say two in primary? The two considerations. The two considerations are follow the rights and follow the money, mm. right? Uh, and that sums up really what you're doing. Mm. Um, the, the issue is that rights to a young artist are not that interesting. Now, I've made lots of tracks in my time, uh, had, for the most part, sensible contracts. I've got those rights back. I'm now able to exploit some of my older tracks, some of the more successful ones, directly on Spotify. Yeah. I which is great, no, no middleman taking royalties, but that's 15 years down the line. Mm. Uh, trying to explain to a 20-something artist what that, that actually intellectual property is like real property and is um, akin to a pension fund if you've got a, a catalogue, mm. um, very often falls on deaf ears. But at the same time, I feel obliged to say it because some people do listen and, and, and do consider the rights to be uh, an important issue. Mm. And, and the music's changed so much uh, and, and the more uh, away from dance music, which I think has nearly always been about sort of the live experience or, or most often, and is presumably that's where the money's been as well in, in going off to around the world, like you say, uh, DJing, uh, club nights, um, being on the radio. Uh, more so than maybe the the publishing, maybe more so than the the, the music that you're creating, that's now shifted across to more, let's say, more mainstream pop rock music. That it's back again where the live experience is assumed to be. I think the more lucrative side of the business. Is that changed mm. the way that music has been approached, or rights, or, or I'd say yes or no. I think you're right where dance music is, is concerned, which has a disproportionately uh, weighted um, amount of cash, percentage of the, of the overall financial pot in live. I think where uh, where pop, where urban are concerned, my practice, mm. where where the art the artist side of my practice is predominantly dance, urban, and pop. Um, don't do so many bands and don't do obviously classical and stuff. Um, dance music is very much about live. So actually, I learned very early that I needed to expand my cl my client base and my practice beyond dance music because actually live doesn't generate that much legal work um, because where there are problems, they tend to be fairly straightforward problems to solve. They're, it's kind of debt collection problems or because the con uh, pro forma agency contracts between a promoter and by by virtue of agency with the artist mm. don't have many variables they tend to be kind of filled the fill in the blank type scenarios yeah, yeah. and the only and the only problems there there are a few pro there are problems in litigious countries like the US where you need more public liability insurance there are there, and there are problems with payment but there aren't that many kind of issues and they're com they're not negotiated by lawyers generally mm. they're negotiated by agents mm. um, so really that just leaves you with the other the other, th the, ho the, the, the holy trinity of um, of agreements, which is recording agreements, music publishing agreements, and management, uh, of which do apply, of course, to dance artists. But but actually, the recording side of things is a much more buoyant industry in certain other genres of music. Mm. Where because in dance music, making records is more of a calling card upon which one um, develops a live career. Mm. And I, I remember reading that you, um, it's, it's crazy that you, you would be, as a 
teenager going around buying the secondhand records, uh, are you still inundated with uh, people's calling cards these days? Are, are they being coming well, through the post? I mean, the only the only way I can be a lawyer and dare I say almost a full time DJ, albeit only at weekends, mm. is to have a full time PA who just handles the DJ side of what I do. Because mm. I have a I've got a weekly podcast, weekly radio show, which yeah. is heavily syndicated. And I make records. Uh, and the volume of music is just huge, not just in dance music. I mean, they, they, whoever they might be, reckon there's about mm. 50,000 releases a week globally, musically. So it's just a, I mean, it's, it's just an impossibility. Yeah. Uh, in dance music, it's less, but still, yeah. still I could receive 2,000 promos a week and somebody needs to, clearly I need to filter them down ultimately to what I like, but I probably listen to... 200 a week, which have been filtered down by the guy who looks after all of that for me. Well, look, you've, you've, you, you said at the beginning that you didn't have that uh, role model, you didn't have anyone to uh, aspire to. Uh, I think that it's probably fair to say that you've got a lot of people following you now. Uh, dance music still seems to be as big as ever. Um, club culture seems to be other, the face is back. Uh, who expected that? Uh, uh, vinyls uh, back on the scene. Uh, do you see the future of dance music uh, following your legal career and uh, on the up and up? I just think it's very strong, really. I think that there's been, there are, it, there are always two steps forward, one step back. There are, I don't think it's been, a, it's, it's been an inconsistent year for festivals and the growth area of festivals has been family festivals, actually. Mm. Um, I think that... Um, there have been various kind of technological revolutions in, in my stroke, our lives, and people mm. talk about the smartphone, people talk about the internet, but actually high-speed internet was the biggest and most significant revolution, I think, where the arts were concerned because it moved the pace of the conveyor belt. So mm. the minute everybody can access everything, which they couldn't automatically do when in the internet per se came into existence, suddenly uh, pe people's t taste and their desire to grab onto new bits of arts and culture moves all the faster, made worse by social media, which mm. again creates a kind of fast-moving culture. So that's um, that's a challenge for current artists. I'm sure if I'd become an artist now, even you know, Ceteris Paribus, all other things being equal, I don't think I would have had the the, the duration of career as a as mm. an artist because people just want to kind of grab onto new things more quickly. But generally speaking, I think I think the landscape is great. I it's funny when I wake up in the morning, I. I think like a lawyer. I really do. I don't. I don't think like a DJ. I, I when I go out to DJ and I'm in front of a crowd, it's the ultimate drug. Nothing is better because it's like being the the, the point of connection between people's love of music, people's love of being together collectively, um, people being a bit intoxicated. You're on the stage. It's it's mm. phenomenal. But but actually, day in day out, I think like a lawyer and I think about my clients and I think about my practice. And, and actually think about it in a, you know, it's a business and I charge money, but I think about it in a sort of semi-altruistic way as mm. well. And that's kind of where my heart and my mind truly is at right now. Well, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, keep that thought in mind. Keep, hang on to it. Uh, and I hope it lasts with you for the rest of your career. And I'm sure it will. Jules Ariadne, thank you very much. Thanks. The Hearing. As ever, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again and why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.